Fantastic. What a great way to start. <clears throat> We're going to jump straight in to 2 Peter. And so if you've got your copy of God's Word with you, you can uh, open up to 2 Peter chapter 2. Um, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, you're welcome to take one of the ones in the seats in front of you. Um, I mean, or you can download one on a free app if, if you're so, so uh, that, that's how you'd like to do it. The, um, uh, I, I will tell you, it was kind of funny this week listening to um, a, sem a seminary professor talking about one of these passages, and it just totally, uh, he thought it was hilarious that we now scroll again. I, he just thought that was hilarious. Like, that was the biggest joke to him. He was just stuck there. He thought that was awesome. Um, anyway, so... So scrolling in God's Word um, to chapter 2, starting in verse 1, I'm going to catch us up to where we are. And so we'll build a little momentum here. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Um, uh, I, I would say, one, I apologize for the, uh, I've got the head cold everybody else has got as well. So um, if you've been here for long, you're, you've learned to put up with that every once in a while that I'm going to um, sound like I'm teaching from underwater. Um, I apologize for that. But um, I told Paul, I, I'm convinced now that the reason sermons are 35 to 40 minutes long is because that's how long a cough drop lasts in your mouth. And so apparently somewhere along the way, someone's like, this would be perfect. It's perfect. So we'll see. All right. So if I said, those of you who've grown up in church, by the way, if you don't know the answer to these questions because you're newly churched or, or badly churched or, or you've just been unchurched or whatever, that's totally fine. Don't, don't let that stress you. But if you've been in church a long time, people tend to, to, to turn towards certain passages in the Bible for certain topics. So if I say, for example, um, we need, what, what chapter would you send me to look at if I wanted to learn about love? Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, right? Okay, most of you know that. What if I said, I want to go to a chapter on faith? Where would you send me? Hebrews 11, right? Kind of the, the, the faith hall of fame is a, is a great place to talk about that. I could, I could throw out different topics like that, and you would send me to different places for these. Um, and and the, the chapter we're looking at today is another one of those. It's not one that's as likely to be cross-stitched into a doily and given to someone on Mother's Day. Um, it's a whole lot less likely to be hanging in someone's bathroom um, on some calligraphy board or something like that. But it's just as important. So if someone ever says to you, hey, I want to go to the Bible and I really want to dig into the concept of false teachers, where should I look? Well, 2 Peter chapter 2 is where one of the places you want to send them. It's a key thing. It gets its own chapter. This is a vitally important topic. Um, I, I will tell you, so when looking at um, different pastors and their take on this passage as well, this is one of the things I like to do. One of the ones I like to turn to is a guy named David Guzik. Um, I think we've got a picture of David uh, and his wife. Um, there's a couple of things I really appreciate about David. Over the years, he's, he's put a lot of his stuff online as he teaches through these different things. One, bibli he is biblically sound. He knows his material. He does good research. Um, I like his applications. But honestly, what I appreciate about him most is that he gains and loses weight across the years just like I do. And so I just, I just really like that about him. I just... I'm like, I just, I like, there are days when you're like, oh, David, those are your fat pants. I can, I mean, I can tell. I, 
I know that feeling. Like you're preaching in your fat pants today. And so um, it's, a, it's a good thing uh, I love about him. All right, so very comforting. He's discipling me and he doesn't even know it. Um, so, so here's one of the things that David points out that's key when you look at these passages is that no one ever proclaims himself as a false teacher. So if you're going, oh, well, I don't have to worry about false teachers. I'll know them when I see them. Well, they're not going to introduce themselves to you that way. No one ever gets up and is like, hey, before I start today, this is false teaching. Like, no one, no one ever does that. If they do, like, I, I wouldn't even know what, how would we even respond to that. Like, oh, this is going to be fun, right? Like, I don't, I don't know if we'd run or, or just never really take good notes. I, I don't know what we would do. Um, no one does that. Now, I will tell you, I think some of them know. I think there are definitely people, there are con artists out there, who teach and preach in the name of Jesus Christ. They know that what they're saying is not something they believe is true. Um, I think there are plenty of those, um, especially in certain movements within Christianity. I have suspicion as to a few who I would guess at, and if I was to throw out names, I'm not going to, because um, I can't judge the heart, only God can do that. I do feel comfortable, for example, if I go back in time, um, I feel comfortable making that evaluation about Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion, um, after studying his history, because he spent a lifetime as a con artist and wasn't a very good one and wasn't able to make any of his cons hit, whether it was making, ma having magic stones in a bag that he could tell people's futures based on um, or whatever. And he did lots of that kind of stuff. And then, and then somewhere along the line, I think he just hit a con that finally worked for him, which was the religious con. Um, I've run into that over time. In fact, intriguingly, the Renaissance Fair out in White House, where I used to speak sometimes and answer questions for them on Sunday mornings, uh, which it's now closed down. But there was a guy out there who would always, every time I would go out there, would stop me and be like, now, pastor, you can, you can let me know. Like, I, I, I know this whole pastor thing is a con. Like, my dad was a pastor, and he was a con. And so I, I know that it is, and you can, it's okay to tell me. I know you can't tell many other people. And it's a weird version of comfort, by the way. Like, listen, I know you got to keep the pretense up for everybody else. You can, be, you can tell the truth. You can be honest with me. And I was like, man, if me being out here at 8 o'clock in the morning with you people... And the fact that you don't pay me anything to come out here, like, if that doesn't let you know that this is not a con for me, I got nothing for you. Like, I can't, I don't know what would possibly convince you that I really believe this stuff. I'm legitimate. I, I really think this stuff is true. Uh, but he would do it every time, every, the next year, it'd be like, no, no, wink, wink. You can, right, right, I'll come. Yeah, well, anyway, it's, it's just, um, they exist. They're out there. I also think there's a huge swath of Christian teachers who they think what they're teaching is true. And we've talked about that. We've talked about the fact that you can believe something is true. We talked about that the last two weeks, the eyewitness concept. That you can, you can be convinced of something and be wrong. This is such a wild thing that, that, that I have to actually say that in America is shocking. If you don't know, how do you not know that? That just because you believe something, that doesn't make it true. The level of delusion it requires in a culture of that to be the case. Uh, all of my math teachers will attest to you that I can be absolutely confident of something and be wrong. They all marked my papers to indicate so, right? <laughs> this, is, this, is the, this is not, and what's, here's what's wild, and now we treat this idea of false teaching as though it's harmless. In fact, it's not even just harmless, it, it can even be celebrated. The things that I proclaim that are true that aren't true, we're all supposed to celebrate that together. And and we're all supposed to be on the same page and be okay with that. Even though I'm teaching something that is absolutely not true and that everyone at some level, or at least most people know, is not true. It doesn't matter. 
We're still supposed to all celebrate that. At best, it's considered harmless. Listen, believe what you want to believe as long as it works for you, right? Your beliefs are harmless. What you teach is harmless. You just teach it. It's about you. You just enjoy it. It's about you as long as it works for you. This is the the William James concept of of psychology of religion. (coughs) Whether your religion is true or not is irrelevant, according to a lot of modern psychological teaching. What matters is whether it works for you. Does it center you? Does it allow you not to deal with have too much anxiety? Does it give you purpose in life? Is it true? Who cares? But does it work for you? That's what matters. That, in other words, embrace your false teaching. Run with that as long as it works for you. It's harmless. It's not harmless. False teaching is never harmless. And we're going to get to see God's attitude about false teaching in this chapter. Okay, even worse sometimes, those of us who are taking the role of teachers, we fall into this false idea that being a teacher somehow protects me from being wrong. Um, my dad, uh, who was a PhD, uh, is a PhD, um, uh, he would sometimes say that a PhD just means your Bachelor of Science degree is piled higher and deeper, and uh, that that's, that's all that that means. And so, and, and he, but he would often, as a forestry professor, he would, he would joke with me about, Someone would ask what some bird, you know, some speck flying up in the sky, you couldn't tell what it was, and be like, Dr. Lee, what kind of bird is that? And he would just, you know, make something up and be like, that's an eagle. And they would go, oh, okay, how do you know? Because because I have a PhD, that's how I know. (laughs) So PhDs get to dictate terms, and he didn't really do that. Um, But that that was the idea, that by being a teacher, somehow what I say is more likely to be true. Me being a teacher doesn't make what I say true. So true or not, whether I'm a teacher or not, that is, that's not how that works. In fact, the biblical attitude for teachers is exactly the opposite than, oh, because I'm a teacher, I can be a little more fast and loose with the truth. Here's what James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If you put bits into the mouth of horses so that they will obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. It's a fascinating picture, isn't it, that James puts here. That what comes out of our mouth sometimes is not in the control, doesn't have the control that it needs to have. And there's a judgment that comes with that. Now listen, I'm not afraid of God sending me to hell because of me teaching something badly or teaching something falsely. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not a child of his wrath anymore, but I want him to, to hear the seriousness with which I take his word and the respect that I have for him and, and how I teach what he has revealed. That's very, very important to me. <coughs> it's not something that I ever want to be easy with. I think God intentionally allowed me the very first time that I ever taught was to a group of college students in Nacogdoches, and it was a sermon entitled Brick Christians. Uh, and this is the young prophet in me who, who was saying, listen, so many of you, you're no better a Christian than the bricks in the buildings of a church. I mean, yeah, you're a church. You, maybe you're there all the time, like the bricks in the buildings are. And maybe you, there's some things you don't, you don't drink, swear, chew, or date girls who do. But you could say that about the bricks in the church as well. Like, there's nothing special about that. There's more to Christianity than just what we don't do and, and the fact that we're at church all the time. And that's, hey, that's pretty good, isn't it? By the way, like, that's, that's, not, that's not bad. Um, I look back on that like, yeah, it could have been worse. And so, unfortunately, it was worse. In the middle of the sermon, I got so excited, apparently, my friends told me later, I don't remember this, I got so excited and so worked up that I said, and you know what, if that's the case, saved or unsaved, you're going to hell. 
So that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that would be heresy and <laughs> blasphemy, um, both at the same time. Like I managed to commit the greatest sins against teaching in my very first time ever teaching. I think, I think that's God allowed me to do that so to keep me like all the time that I would never go like, yeah, I've got it all together. I mean, except for that stuff. So, uh, except for the fact that I was absolutely wrong. Okay. So, uh, I, I think it is valuable for us as teachers to recognize, I'm not afraid of this conversation with God someday, but I am deeply respectful of the fact that I'm going to have it. Deeply respectful of the fact that I'm going to get to have a little extra conversation with God than the rest of you. And that all of us who are teachers get to have that conversation as we sit down and debrief, essentially, I think, probably what we taught. And I, I think those are going to be a sobering conversation and maybe even a hard conversation at times. And so I recognize that. And, and, and to recognize that's a false, a, a teacher should be humble about and humbled about being a teacher. It, it should be a little bit of a, of a nerve-wracking thing to think, I'm going to get up and tell people what God thinks they ought to do. I should, that should make me a little nervous. I want to be very careful that when I speak, I speak what I think he would speak if he was the one here speaking, if you will. I appreciate greatly Colson's prayer this morning saying that my words would be his words and not my words, because mine are no good. So let's get back to Scripture, because that's where we're safe. The false teachers are setting us up. They want to take advantage of you for their own personal gain. How do you protect yourself? Peter says, know the truth. Know what he teaches you. Know these things. He has given us all we need for life and godliness. Part of our quiet times this week, um, uh, Josh White, who's been visiting our church, um, wrote our quiet times for us this week uh, as a staff. And one of, his main, uh, one of the main focus of the week, one of the main focus of the week was the, um, the concept of guarding our heart. And this falls into this idea of making sure we know what the truth is. The truth, the peace that comes with that truth guards that. The, the concept, most of us are aware of it, comes from Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Many translations there will say, guard your heart. Philippians 4.7 returns to this concept. Paul says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is important stuff. We need to understand how these are. One idea, as we looked at it, one of the, the discussions that we got into, and as I, we were looking at kind of a cross-reference type of stuff, I found this, this teacher who said that understanding the heart, the concept of the heart in the Hebrew and Greek mind, was kind of the center of your person. It's the core of your person. And it's important that we guard that. That, we, that we, we guard that with the truth, that we, we're, we're constantly putting the truth in that core of who we are and we're returning to it all the time. It's vital. In fact, this author compared um, the heart to like the central command at an airport, like the control center, the tower at the airport. Man, you definitely want to post guards there because it's, it's bad news, obviously, we know if a terrorist gets on an airplane. But imagine if terrorists got into the tower. Think of the havoc they could wreak there. And so it's so important that we guard our hearts, that the core of who we are is always carefully connected only to the truth. And that's the only thing we let in there is his peace. Be aware. And there is a price to pay for false teachers. There is a destruction, an ancient one that's coming on them. Believe it, my friends. In fact, Peter's going to say, you should believe it, and I'm going to give you three solid examples of the fact that God will not tolerate sin forever. Eventually, his patience will run out. 
and he will call them into judgment. It will be time no longer for him to wait before him to act. That's happened at least these three times that, the, that Peter's going to throw out. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. There's one. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's two. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That's three. Now, once again, you have Peter, and I think because of who Peter is is why he does this. I don't know if you picked up on this pattern already, but but Peter struggles to stay with the judgment of God very long without also throwing in the reminder that this is, after all, the God who will rescue anybody. And so that's exactly what we get. We get these three verses of these three horrific judgments of God on sin and on death. And then he says, but before you panic, don't fear as much as God can bring destruction and judgment. He can also rescue his own from the midst of it. That's what we get the seven through 10. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. So let's unpack these a little bit. The first one, for if God did not spare angels when he sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Maybe your first thought is probably what everyone should be here, which is, what? Like, what? wait, what's going on here? Which angels? What are we talking about? What sin did the angels commit that we're referring to? Now, you've got to hold on a little bit because we're going to get a little Bible nerdy here. In Jude chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, there's a very similar conversation. It goes like this. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt... It's interesting, by the way, that Jude puts that in Jesus' hands. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude is now saying, uh, just like Peter's saying, that there were some angels, and the angels were engaged in something unnatural, inappropriate. They broke a boundary. They rebelled against God's law. Against God's rule for them, they rebelled against it, and they actively chose to disobey God and engaged in some horrific crime, and God punishes them for it. He catches them, punishes them, and locks them away in hell in this place of gloomy darkness. When was this? Well, no one knows for sure. But a good case is Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, we have a group of demons, a group of angels who rebel against God. And when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So, again, I reference Bible nerdy here. So, so an external source to the New Testament authors especially, was something called the book of Enoch, or the books of Enoch. Now, 
You've heard me reference it before. If you've heard me reference it before, maybe you've even heard me reference what, what Paul and I were saying in between the services too. Is that for the New, New Testament writers, for the writers of the Gospels and the letters, the books of Enoch for them was kind of like C.S. Lewis fiction is for us, right? It's, it's, it's good stuff. It's really good. Like, we love it. We love reading it. You, I mean, I quoted, what, two Sundays ago, I quoted a speech by Aslan. Not from the Bible, from C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? That's, but, but, man, we're like, we go, this is not Scripture, but this guy seems to really get it. That's how we relate to it. That's what kind of the book of Enoch was for the first century Christians, is that they would look at this and they'd go like, man, this isn't Scripture. Some of this is kind of nutty. I don't know if I agree with some of this stuff, but, man, there's some insight here that's really good. Probably the reason it looks like Jude and Peter were reading from one another's books or reading from another third book is that both of them were aware of the books of Enoch and were probably referencing it as well as each other and what the Holy Spirit is guiding them to. So in Enoch, in chapter 7, you get this account of a mythical reference that early Christians referred to regularly. Again, not as scripture, um, but it references 200 rebellious watchers who decide to disobey God by pursuing human women. They make a pact to rebel together. None of them are courageous enough to do it on their own in the account. They're all afraid of God catching just one of them. And so they're all like, well, if, what, if we all do it together, maybe we won't get in trouble. Isn't that funny? Anybody did that in high school? <laughs> You're like, man, these, we haven't grown up. The demons didn't, they're not far beyond most of our high school students, apparently. They're like, listen, if one of us do it, we might get in trouble. But if we all do it, anyway, because that'll work. It doesn't work. I've tried it. Um, the, uh, and so they made a pact together. They cohabitated with the women, and then they taught them powers. According to Enoch, they taught them pagan powers, astrology, weaponsmithing, precious metals and stones, and even dyes, D-Y-E-S. Why working on those things? Well, because they were in a total rebellion against God, and they were teaching these women how to change things from the way God made them, how to improve upon God's creation which was an aspect of their, uh, of their rebellion. And under the heading of witchcraft, I'm not kidding, in Enoch 7, under the heading of witchcraft, they also taught the women cosmetics. Right? Witchcraft. Their offspring, uh, their offspring were monsters who killed and destroyed every living thing they came across. This is a really a likely candidate for what's being described here. That here you have this description of this rebellion and what happened to these angels who rebelled against God, decided to do things their own way, got caught, and got punished. And what happened to them? What happened to those 200 rebels and presumably many of the other rebellious angels as well? It says, He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Now, the word hell here is a strange word for hell. It doesn't show up often in Scripture. It's the word Tartarus where gods lock up their enemies. You ever, you ever heard somebody use the phrase like, that guy's prison's too good for that guy, they should throw him under the prison? That's literally what Tartarus was. The Greek concept <coughs> of Tartarus is, it's where you put the people under Hades. You literally, Hades isn't bad enough for them, you need to throw them under Hades. It's the spiritual prison, it's where the titans were thrown by the gods. The deepest region of the world thrown into prison, thrown into the pit, the abyss, the defeated members of the demonic horde, the rebellious spirits. The Iliad refers to the to Tartarus as, quote, a deep place under the earth where there are iron gates and a brazen entrance. 
There's even dispute here over the word caves or maybe chains. It's hard to know exactly what's being described here. Um, but I, I, I like the way one author is going to say it down here. We get here a second. I'll show you. Gloomy, gloomy is, is not a good word for me. I see the word gloomy and I think Scooby-Doo. And I don't know what that is. It just creates the total wrong. Like there's something, um, something animated about the word gloomy for me in my brain. And that's not at all the picture that Peter's trying to create. The word here is terrifying darkness, fearful darkness. In fact, as I said, one commentator said, probably should be understood, this passage probably should read this, where darkness lies on you like chains. That communicates well. To be kept there until the final judgment. So he didn't spare angels. That's one. If he didn't spare the angels, it seemed like he would spare them before anybody else. He didn't spare them. He didn't spare the ancient world, verse 5, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The destruction of the ancient civilization of man with a flood, wiping out any progress that mankind had made at that point. The idea being that, that, that these people were in rebellion, probably the earth was infested with these offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men, that everything was in rebellion and hatred, that they were turning on each other, the practice of sorcery and witchcraft, and, and all those things were just very normalized. The level of violence was unacceptable, and so God said, you know what? I'm just washing it clean. I'm starting over. I can either wipe out the human race. Remember, remember we talked about in 1 Peter that the flood is not the destruction of the human race. It is the rescuing of the human race. We think of the flood as somehow God being wicked or angry or something like that going on with God. And the truth is what God was doing was rescuing us from ourselves and giving us a fresh start as often we need. That was maybe 10,000 years before Christ that the flood swept the earth and the early civilizations. Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned it to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So here we have another example. And by the way, the location of Sodom and Gomorrah is, is relatively well established. We know approximately where it was, um, where these two cities were, on near the, what we would call the Dead Sea today, the Salt Sea, um, which is an area that is, is relatively blasted um, from stuff as well. But right now, Deborah Harder, who is in Israel right now preparing for our trip to go back. Um, when Deborah went, she went to the place of, of, uh, and said it was really wild that, that there were rocks there and you would sometimes you would reach out to pick up a rock and touch it and it would just dissolve because it's just ash. That everything is white, like that hill behind her, is, that's ash, that's white ash. This whole area is like that. This whole place has been just blasted into, into bits of ash. Now, she has a little bit of a funny story that you'll appreciate. You see the bag on the ground next to her? Um, so, Deborah sometimes, um, I think she would proudly embrace this, sometimes makes a decision before she considers all of the possible ramifications of it. And so, she thought, man, you know what would be great? I want to prove to people this exists. And so, I'm going to make a, fill up a whole bag full of this white powder and, and take it back with me to America. And I don't know if you've tried to come through customs with a bag of white powder before, but apparently that doesn't always work out. Uh, the way you want it to. So, um, Deborah gets to create lots of fun stories in Israel. Um, so, here's, here's what, she's, she, <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> here's what we talked about here. Genesis 18, 20, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. So, notice it's the sin that he is punishing here. Now, what sins? 
Now, Jude already told us about some of them, and we know about many of them. The sexual morality is certainly one of the sins. The unnatural sexual behavior is certainly one of the sins. And, and in today's world, every once in a while, you'll find some commentator who, trying to prove a point, will say, no, it's not the sexual behavior that was a sin. It was, it was the fact that they're trying to molest people. That's the crime. And that's just not accurate. That's not actually what's taught biblically. The sexual morality is, is a part of it. But before we jump into the, oh yeah, those people mindset when we talk about sin, I want us to look at what Ezekiel says about Sodom. That yes, of course the sexual crime, the sexual sin is a huge part of, of what it was that God was judging. But listen to Ezekiel 16.49 as God speaks. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, an excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Now, so in other words, not only was the sexual sin a crime against God that he punished and turned them to ash, but so was their pride. So was the fact that they were filled with excess and did not share it. Lacking hospitality is a crime against humanity in the Middle East, and it certainly was then. So to recognize, okay, maybe in my life some of these sexual sins aren't so tempting, but is pride? But is not sharing the good things that God has given me? Those are things for us to be aware of. Those are part of what God was punishing as well. That happened about 2,000 years before the birth of Christ at a best guess. And verse 7 tells us, so here we have Peter reminding us, okay, but he can rescue us. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. It strikes me as intriguing that Lot lived potentially 16 years in the city of Sodom. There's a tough debate over why he stayed there. Given that he was surrounded with this level of sin, surrounded with this level of evil, surrounded with this level of inhospitality, and he knew it because he, the minute the strangers show up in town, he gathers them and hides them in his home because he knows what's coming. And so he knew about the sin and he stayed there. So there's a fascinating conversation with why he did. Clearly, Peter lets us know he was tormented by it, but he stayed. And this is one of the things I think is a, is a good thing to remember he stayed for 16 years, and there he invested. He invested his income. He invested property. <coughs> it's where he built his business. It's where he raised his children. It's where he invested in his marriage. And investing in this culture cost him. Investing there cost him pretty much everything. He invested his life and the youth of his children, his business, etc., in Sodom. I think that was a compromise on his part. I think he compromised by staying there. It was easier. It seemed easier than trying to get out there in the wilderness like his, uh, like his uncle Abraham did. Instead, he found the city life, the easy life. It cost him everything that he had invested there. His businesses, his house, everything were destroyed. His friends and, his, his friends and any extended family who were there, destroyed. It cost him the sense of faithfulness in his children who raised in this pagan culture, when they run into a problem, the first thing they do is try to solve it themselves, disobeying God's laws. It even cost him his wife. 
who being in this culture as well, you get this sense that she had, so, she had been ingrained slightly more than he had <clears throat> so that as they're running away and God gives them one instruction, listen, I'm about to wipe this place out. Don't even look back. And how hard would that would be? The home where she raised her children was back there. The, the people she'd invested in, the garden that she had built, it was back there. And so she turned to watch the destruction of these things she loved so much and it cost her her life. This is... This is a, a vitally important uh, application for us as well to be asking ourselves, what are we investing in? I suspect there are lots of people in America who have invested millions upon millions, in fact, I know there are, who invested millions and millions of dollars in the abortion industry. And many of them are probably about to go bankrupt, as is right. I hope so. I have an ancestor who I've talked about before, Wade Hampton, who, according at least to, to family legend at one point, had over a thousand slaves. He invested in something that was a worldly cultural thing that was accepted, though it was immoral and wrong and unbiblical and evil. He invested in a commodity of slaves. And in an instant, he was worth almost nothing, as is right, as he deserved. When you invest in something wicked and evil, don't be surprised when suddenly you don't have anything. That's the nature of, of God's judgment even on earth. They weren't a commodity. They were human beings created in the image of God, but he had compromised and invested in the immoral deeds of his culture. And when judgment came, he lost it all, as is just. I'll encourage you, do not sit in the false teaching of others. Do not invest in the false teaching of others. Don't get behind that. It's going to cost you. Skip Heitzig, who's another pastor who I look to, I think we have a picture of him as well. And he's always skinny, so I don't like him as much, quite as much. Um, um, I think he bikes or something. Um, anyway, Skip had a great point about this passage um, and looking at his stuff. He says, imagine you take a big bite of an apple that looks good on the outside, and you take a big bite. And when you take a big bite, you discover that there's this nasty brown wormy section in the middle of it that's just gotten all mealy and rotten in the middle. What do you do with that bite of apple? Yeah, you spit it out. You don't sit there. You don't invest in that. You don't chew that up and swallow it. You spit it out as quickly as possible. You get that junk out of your mouth. That should be our response to false teaching. When we hear it, when we understand it, we recognize it looks good. Man, that makes good sense. But the minute we realize what it is, we need to get it out of our lives and get it out of our minds and our bodies. We need to move on and get past that. I think that's a great response when you hear it and you, and you recognize it for what it is. Don't stay. Don't stick around. Don't chew on that or suck on that. Throw it, spit it out, get rid of it. It's fascinating that, that Peter here ends this conversation on this idea that if God can save Noah from the flood... And if God can save Lot from the cities, then he can protect anyone he chooses to. We may be tormented by the lawlessness of our culture, but if we follow God, we too can be rescued from the judgment that God brings on wickedness. So, <clears throat> I, I, this makes total sense to me. I know people struggle with this. But when you stand on a firm foundation... When you're on the high ground and the floodwaters come and whatever, and everything else gets washed away, that's still going to be there. It's not because you're so cool. It's because you're standing on the right place. That's what keeps you alive. It's not because of you. It's because you chose to stand on the right place, and the right place will keep you alive. Does this make sense? When we talk about American exceptionalism, this is one of those conversations I think is fascinating. 
It isn't that America is exceptional in and of itself. It's that there were founding concepts built on Judeo-Christian ideals. Those are exceptional. They're exceptional ideals. They're founded in God's truth, and that's exceptional. Anybody who builds something on God's truth, the truth will maintain its exceptional nature. Move off the truth and expect to fall. That's how that works. It wasn't that America is exceptional in and of itself. It's that America was founded on exceptional ideas. And anyone, anyone in anything. Now listen, they also blew it. Man, they connect, they, they sinned in the midst of some of the things they created. They, and isn't it wild? Every time they ignored those biblical ideals, every time they defied those Judeo-Christian ideals, we're still paying for it. It still costs us. When they, when they disregarded God's teaching and built on something else, and when they compromised, quite literally compromised in an effort to build something, when they should have stood their ground and stood on what was right. It isn't America. I love America. I'm, I'm a crazy patriot. It isn't America, though, that is exceptional. It is those ideas that are exceptional. That's the truth for all of us. It's not us that we're somehow exceptional because we're believers. No, no. It is what we believe in that is exceptional. Stay there. Don't move from there. It looks like, man, everything else is washing past you, and you're like, oh, this looks really dangerous and scary. Maybe I need to get off of this. Um, no. No, we stand on what God's Word teaches us, and we stick there because follow God's instruction even... Listen, and I want to make this clear. We follow God's instruction even if it doesn't make sense to us. Even if compromise seems to make the most sense. That being said, isn't it amazing how often God's exceptional truth has a practical wisdom as well? That there's a practical wisdom. If you follow God's truth, things tend to work out pretty well. Not guaranteed to, but it's amazing how often it does. We don't follow God's word because it works out well for us in the short run, but it's fascinating that it does. God gives us what we need to be protected from natural judgment. Now, as Peter's pointing out, is much more important that the main thing God teaches us protects us from His judgment. His grace is what protects us from His judgment. He can also, He can rescue people from His judgment and to keep the unrighteous, to quote from Peter, to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. That last phrase we'll start with next week. But how seriously does God take false teaching? Well, he's, teaching about, he's talking about false teaching. And what are the examples that he comes up with? The judgment of the angels who rebelled against him? The flood? And Sodom and Gomorrah? Those are pretty extreme examples. In fact, they're kind of the top three you could come up with for God's extreme judgment. How serious does he take it? Extremely. How completely can he protect us? as if we're following him in the midst of those, completely. It's amazing to see. He will judge the unrighteous. He knows how, and he even knows how to hold them ready until it's the right time. Are there times that you feel like, it seems like it's the right time for this guy? You know what? I think I'm just going to cast my vote and say, now would be a good time for this person to face judgment for the horrible things they've done. And you can imagine God going, listen, I appreciate your insight. That's cute. Uh, I've got it handled. I, I know when to do this. I know how to do this. I know the right way to do it and the right time to do it. Especially those who, by the way, are playing follow the leader when it comes to false teaching. 
who live and act within themselves and follow the leader within them, their own flesh. The language here is wild. Burning up in their desire for their own rotting passions. This is when we're burning up to shove more of the rotten apple in our face. And we just want more and more. And it's not satisfying, and it's not satisfying, and it's not satisfying. And so we keep trying to shove this more and more in there, thinking maybe eventually the, the problem isn't that we've chosen the wrong thing. The problem is that we just don't have enough of it yet. And that's ridiculous. The idea of despising authority, what a difficult thing for us. After all, we're Americans. We're not big on authority. We're Texans, who are even less big on authority. We're Baptists, who are even less big on authority. Right, we're the, we're the one denomination, like, ain't nobody tell us what to do. We run our own churches. Ain't no denomination out there going to boss us around. I'll tell you what, right? That's our attitude. So when you combine those three, Baptist, Texan, Americans, it's a bad mixture. <laughs> our tendency to not want to defy almost any authority is very dangerous. So I would say... It's a good reminder to us to, to remember at minimum that God is the authority. And that anyone who's not under his authority is not someone we need to be following. Anyone who seems to, to laud in themselves the authority somehow beyond him or outside of him is not someone we need to follow. We follow them to places like Sodom and Gomorrah, not out of them. So be prayerfully considering as, as, as in a moment we have our time of of invitation. That time is a time for us to be considering. For some of you, it may be that you would say, man, I'm so comfortable with this judgmental God. I grew up with judgmental parents and a, a judgmental dad who was harsh and abusive and mean, sometimes in Jesus's name. Well, you, you may need the Spirit. You may need to really embrace the fact that the Spirit is saying to you, yeah, Jesus who called his people out of Egypt. Jesus who rescued Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus who rescued Noah out of the flood and his family. That's the, you need to be looking to him. Remember, he can rescue you out of anything. Anything. There's nothing in your past that's worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He can rescue you from that. Or for some of us, we've grown so comfortable with this idea of God and his grace that we forget that God in his wrath will bring judgment on sin. And maybe we don't take it seriously enough, and that's something that we need to do. We need to be reminded, no, in the midst of his grace, it doesn't mean that his justice has gone away. He's waiting, and the right time is going to be there. These are both true simultaneously. They don't cancel each other out. I know those of you who have bad relationships with your dad or don't have a good experience with dad don't see how these can live together well easily. Dads are supposed to exemplify these two truths simultaneously. And those who do have good dads, you probably get that. You can go like, yeah, I can see how those are both there simultaneously. So I would, I would pray wherever that is for you, that you would listen to the Spirit and be drawn to what He has for you this morning. So stand with me if you will. Listen to what the Spirit has for you. If you want to come and pray, if you need to be rescued from the Sodom and Gomorrah of your life, whatever that is, we'd love to pray with you. Um, if, you need to be, uh, if you need someone to, to pray with you about even turning in that direction, or what that even means, we'd love to pray for you. If, if you need to accept that free gift of God's grace, and we all do. Um, if there's anything else that you need prayer for, we would love to pray for you here or somebody pray with you over in the corner there. You can sing with us. And if you've been through our welcome home team, our welcome home process, and you're ready to come and be a part of our dysfunctional family, you can come up here and let us know about that as well. And we'd love to celebrate that with you.
Let me close with these words. From 1 Timothy chapter 6, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. <clears throat> but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, and we cannot take anything out of the world. The very words of God.